So on my first three-month retreat, I had just um, read about jhanas before going into retreat. And I was like, wow, that sounds great. You know, I, I have to say this, I had a total of 20 days of retreat experience before I did this retreat. So, <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so, but I read about how pleasant these states are. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I want those. I want them now. And I'm going to manufacture them through sheer force of will. So those of you who are laughing already know how well that likely worked out for me. And you're right. Um, it, you know, it, it reminded me of an interaction I saw between a father and son on a bus, a Greyhound bus. Um, I was going home from university for the weekend many, many years ago now. Um, and I think the little boy must have been about seven because he was old enough to tell time, but young enough that telling time was still kind of a big deal. Um, and so he knew that the bus schedule said we were going to leave at 5.30, and he knew it was 5.30, so he was telling his dad, okay, the bus is going to leave in three, two, one, now. Okay, the bus is going to leave in three, two, one, now. Okay, and, and you, know, he kept, you know how seven-year-olds are. He kept this going for quite a while until finally his dad said, you know, honey, before the bus can leave, the bus driver needs to be in the bus driver's seat. <laughs> and so that was sort of me on the retreat. It was like I was like willing these states to happen without any awareness of what the bus driver even was or where the bus driver's seat was. So um, what, what the Buddha, out of his compassion, taught us is that you can't skip over joy and contentment and calm en route to concentration. You can't just manufacture the mind states you want out of, out of nothing. You have to follow the correct procedures and pay attention to cause and effect in your practice. Um, and so part of that is the relationship to joy in practice. So early in the Buddha's life, he was completely indulged in all of his ple all pleasures by his fond parents. When he went forth into homelessness, he sort of went to the other extreme and engaged in austerities that, you know, nowadays sound kind of like torture. And because of the cultural belief that tormenting the body would somehow free the spirit, um, and, you know, I get the sense that his spiritual companions really had the belief that joy and pleasure were distractions, that, you know, we had to be really serious about the spiritual life. But then one day he remembered a moment in childhood when he was sitting under a shady tree on a summer day, so comfortable and content, and his mind spontaneously entered a pleasant state of concentration and he realized that is a form of pleasure that is wholesome. There's nothing harmful about the pleasure of concentration. So he resolved not to be afraid of wholesome pleasures. And he awoke, and here we are today. So what he taught is the middle way. It's between seeking out and indulging in pleasures for their own sake and shunning pleasure entirely. And so... The two ends of that spectrum 
um, are a little bit different for us. Like we still seek out pleasure to cover up painful experience the same way that people in the Buddha's day did. Um, but our ways of tormenting ourselves have shifted a little bit. I think we're not, um, you know, it ten we tend to go more for mental torture than physical torture. You know, the way we berate ourselves for all of our perceived shortcomings, not realizing that it's not possible to hate yourself into being somebody that you can love. You know, they, sometimes I think of that, um, I think it's like a New Yorker cartoon or something with a slave galley, you know, where all the slaves are rowing all the time and a sign up on the wall saying, beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> you know, I feel like that's how a lot of us relate to ourselves a lot of the time. And so, you know, because that for a lot of us, that's sort of the default way of being, it can feel like ooh, a little bit illicit to include joy and contentment as part of your spiritual practice. But that's really what Dr. Buddha ordered. You know, this is the prescription he gave us. So, okay, so let's assume that I need to sell you on the benefits of joy. What, what are the benefits of joy, especially in the context of spiritual practice? It creates space in the mind. So painful states can't overwhelm you when you can broaden your awareness to include pleasant things too. And this can be a really simple shift of perspective. It can feel more like curiosity than joy. So just the question, what else is true? You know, uh, there's this huge feeling of self-loathing. What else is true? Oh, a robin is chirping. Can that be in my awareness too? Humor can also function the same way to create space in the mind. Um, the late Bernie Glassman would often wear a red clown's nose to, ch to teach, um, to sort of puncture all of the ideas that people tend to have about teachers. And he said, if there's somebody I'm having trouble listening to, perhaps because their politics is angering me, I imagine that person with a red nose on and my whole attitude changes. When you add something as simple as a red nose, it becomes a different world. So deliberately inviting that lightness into a difficult relationship. Um, I took a clowning class last fall, and there's, there's a number of different schools of clowning. But in this particular one, the, you know, I, I don't think it was developed by a Buddhist, but it's, um, it is very much a practice of non-self. So basically all you do in this school of clowning is to take your... Um, sort of darkest tendencies and exaggerate them until they're funny, yeah. you know, and I've actually had almost that same instruction in a practice interview. You know, I was reporting feelings of shame and worthless, worthlessness, like I'm just a waste of oxygen. And my, my teacher was like, well, you know, why not just sit there and waste oxygen for 45 minutes? You know, why do you need to fight with this attitude? Why not just like bring a yes to it? You know, Gil's yes of joy, including even our most oppressive mental tendencies. You know, when we can meet them with a yes, even if they themselves have a no in them, you know, there's, there becomes this, um, you know, they're no longer a problem. They're, they're something we can still hold in our kind awareness. Um, and in a, in an interview with, um, a sort of panel, panel discussion from Lion's Roar with Bernie Glassman. Carolyn Rose Gimian says, taking the humor 
out of people's lives is one of the greatest forms of oppression. And just curious, you know, have you ever noticed yourself doing that to yourself? Are there times when your meditation practice has become sapped of humor and vitality? Just to notice. Because joy sustains the heart. Um, Long Chengpa in the 14th century Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism says, out of the rich soil of goodwill grows the beautiful flower of compassion, watered by tears of joy and shaded by the great tree of equanimity. Here. As, so that's one sentence that encompasses the whole of the practice of the Brahma Viharas. Out of the rich soil of goodwill grows the beautiful flower of compassion, watered by tears of joy and shaded by the great tree of equanimity. So joy functions as a balancing quality to help us be with the suffering in our lives and in the world without falling into overwhelm or denial. On Holocaust Remembrance Day very recently, I was reading a story of a man named Gad Beck, who was a very young well, he was 10 years old when the Nazis took over. He was living in Berlin with his family, and they didn't have the resources to leave. And not only was he Jewish, but he was also gay, so he would have, had, he would have been in two different death camps. Um, so he, he lived through the whole war, sometimes living in bombed-out buildings, smuggling supplies to other Jews living in hiding. He staged a daring, daring rescue attempt to try to rescue his first true love who, had been, um, who was about to be taken away to Auschwitz by the Nazis. Um, when that rescue attempt failed, he kept on doing what he was doing. And he kept on, he was fighting for his right to not just survive, but to be fully human, to be fully who he was. So in the midst of smuggling supplies in and you know people out and all of the things he did to try to resist the Nazis, he you know, went to parties and nurtured friendships and flirted and fell in love. And he said, I mustered strength from the individual moments of happiness that I was always able to wring out of life. So the really ordinary mundane joys that he was able to still find in this life of incredible hardship and fear kept him moving in the direction of um, compassion and authenticity. Joy reminds us that we're not practicing, we're not living from a grim sense of duty, trying to live up to some imagined ideal. We're practicing to be more fully human more alive to the truth of each moment, just the way it is. Joy counteracts ill will and greed. A contented mind doesn't need to seek satisfaction outside itself. And if you have a source of delight, it's really easy to lighten up towards other people and towards your own experience. So joy protects the heart from ill will and greed. So what are some of the forms that joy can take? So I've talked about, you know, how precious even simple sense pleasures can be, no matter how unreliable they are. 
in, in difficult circumstances. Humor can be a form of joy. Mudita, this take, willingness to take joy in other people's good fortune or their virtue, you know, seeing goodness in other people can lighten the heart. There's the joy of being in contact with reality. You know, you might have felt this the first time you encountered the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering in life. It's a natural law. It's not just me. There's the joy, that joy of being in contact with reality shows up in compassion. It, that's what makes it a happy sadness instead of falling into grief. It's like, yes, it's true. Right now there is suffering. Yes. The, the yes of acknowledgement is also the yes of joy. And that same um, joy of truthfulness showed up for me um, a couple of weeks ago in this building when uh, the folks in my teacher training program were watching the movie 13th. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a brilliant documentary about um, how the, the way that prisons are operated in the United States it lines up with the legacy of slavery, the way people are, you know, black men in particular are disenfranchised by the system is one of the, is it, you can draw a lot, direct line from slavery to that. And so, you know, we're sitting here taking in all of these horrifying facts about things people do to each other. And there was this, this sense of, delight in my heart at just the truth telling that we were that we were seeing conditions can be awful and we can work to change them and people's resilience means that they can flourish in spite of everything that life throws at them another form of joy is the bliss of blamelessness this is a say so this is an essential practice for people who want to really train their minds. And um, I think it's uh, Majjhima Nikaya 8. Um, the, the Buddha gives a list of contrasting pairs for practitioners to contemplate. Others will be harmful. We shall not be harmful. Others will kill living beings. We shall not kill. Others will lie. We shall speak the truth. Others will speak maliciously. We shall speak kindly. Others will be cruel. We shall not be cruel. Others will be without wisdom. We shall cultivate wisdom. So the Acknowledgement that, you know, you can't control other people's actions and the joy of the determination, the resolve for harmlessness um, is, a, is a big support for people who want to train their mind in tranquility. The poet Louis Dudek writes, All ugliness is a distortion of the lovely lines and curves which sincerity makes out of hands and bodies moving in air. Beauty is ordered in nature, 
as the wind and sea shape each other for pleasure, as the just know, who learn of happiness from the report of their own actions. So being able to look back on your own actions with a feeling of satisfaction, I did my best. Maybe it didn't work out the way I hoped it would, but I did my best. And then, of course, there's the joy of meditation. Um, for all of the press that the Four Noble Truths get, Buddhists are really pleasure seekers. It's just that we're looking for more and more reliable pleasures. So after not getting any food on alms round, the Buddha was asked if he was unhappy. He said, happily do we dwell, we who have no impediments. Feeders on joy shall we be, even as the radiant devas. So feeling sustained by this inwardly generated joy. And so we've finally arrived at the quality of piti, the fourth, fac fourth factor of the uh, seven factors of awakening. And it naturally arises as... Um, in the course of meditation. So as you uh, bring mindfulness to your experience, you wisdom arises about the ouch and the ah of unskillful and skillful states. You're able to identify how to wisely apply energy. And the attention becomes rapt, enraptured. So the, this this quality that I've been calling joy is often translated as rapture. Um, but I, I, I prefer to think of it as, as rapt attention. It's the quality of the heart that receives experience, that savors it, that tastes it. The mind's fascinated and like wrapped up in experience. A breath, fascinating. A moment of resentment, fascinating. A sound, fascinating. And so when, when there's this mind that um, settles into things that, you know, is absorbed into things as they are, we're more capable of staying present with things as they are, however they are. So we're more resilient and less dependent on things turning out our way. You know, if you can bring rapt attention to the experience of standing in line at the supermarket, it kind of doesn't matter how long that line is. And so it's different from the pleasure of getting what you want. It's this unification of body, heart, and mind in practice. And so how does this joy arise? How can we feed or starve it? Um, in Gil's example yesterday, the, the full effort, the full presence you know, there's a kind of joyfulness implicit in the, in the wholeheartedness of, um, of effort, the, the undividedness of attention, this wise or nurturing attention that we bring to each moment of experience. Um, in the Sanyutta Nikaya, the, the Buddha talks about the nutriments for each of the seven factors of awakening and um, the, in some of the some of the examples, some of the factors have detailed and specific nutriments, and for 
for rapture, he just says, well, there's, if you pay careful attention to things that are the basis for rapture, rapture will arise. I'm like, well, thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, Analayo suggests that noticing the absence of the hindrances is a good basis for the arising of joy. So I think in when he's leading a meditation along these lines, he'll uh, say something like, okay, so bring bring the attention to the breath and notice the presence of the hindrances. Okay, and now that the hindrances have gone away, you can notice their absence. And, you know, for many of us, it might take longer than 10 seconds to uproot the hindrances. If you're not in meditation 18 hours a day, like Analayo is, there might be a bit more stuff in the mind stream to work with. Uh, But... And, you know, it can feel odd to, like, look for things that aren't there. You know, it's like, oh, there it isn't. Like, but, but, you know, there's the hindrances. It's a short list, right? Like, so you can sort of check, oh, it, you know, it, if you're having a moment that's just sort of okay, you know, you could check, okay, so am I greedy right now? Well, no, I don't really want anything. Am I aversive right now? Well, no, no, it, Things can stay, yeah. Am I slothful? No, the mind's fairly awake. Am I agitated? No, no, I'm fine. Am I doubtful? No, I know, I know I'm here. I know I'm sitting. Okay, so there's no real hindrances in the mind right now. And so that awareness can shift a moment of just sort of so-so into joy, into, you know, appreciating the the absence of the forces that oppress and cloud the mind. Another, I feel like a a way that we can inadvertently end up starving joy is through unwillingness to open to joy fully because, you know, there might be this view that meditation is a serious business or life is a serious business or your work is a serious business. And, and so joy can sometimes feel too big to be seemly. It's like, it's not dignified to be delighted in this context. Um, Mary, Mary Oliver um, has a, a poem called don't hesitate. If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, Don't hesitate. Give into it. There are plenty of lives and whole towns destroyed or about to be. We are not wise and not very often kind, and much can never be redeemed. Still, life has some possibility left. Perhaps this is its way of fighting back, that sometimes something happens better than all the riches or power in the world. It could be anything, but very likely you notice it in the instant when love begins. Anyway, that's often the case. Anyway, whatever it is, don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. When I was putting this talk together, I was considering just reading Mary Oliver poems the whole time. So I may yet go that way. Hmm. 
So, as so, again the the this joy in the context of the seven factors. So, as mindfulness grows, we naturally become more interested, connected, more awake, and then that's energizing. And there's gladness, delight, lightness. So these qualities of investigation and energy and joy together provide a sustained, joyful interest in our practice and our lives. They can be used to offset sluggish mind states. If you notice that the mind is dull, you've sort of settled into a nice, calm, foggy state. Uh, you can prompt it to tune in more closely to the present moment by asking, what am I aware of right now? Or just gills, what? You, which can feel like, can I open more fully to the truth of this moment? If there's boredom, notice that not as things being boring, but as a lack of interest in the mind. Can I turn towards whatever it is that I'm shutting down around right now? Can I maybe just turn towards this sense of aliveness that joy brings? How is joy showing up right now? What is this sense of vitality in my life like right now? And on the other hand, the calming states uh, of the seven factors of awakening, tranquility or calm or serenity, concentration and equanimity, these counteract restless mind states. So when the mind feels scattered, it's good to incline the mind towards calm. And of course, mindfulness is the only member of the set that you can never have too much of. You can, wasn't that an expression? You can never be too rich or too mindful. <laughs> yeah. Something. So, this, this state of rapture, of rapt attention, can get to feel overstimulating. There can be a sense of excitement that can come along with it. Maybe that can lapse into anticipation, like, oh, it'll get even better. And so letting go of that excitement can feel like ease and tranquility. If you were walking, you know, as a Canadian, I haven't, I've never really connected much with these desert images, but okay, if... Hypothetically, you were walking through a hot desert and you heard and, you know, you're thirsty and you're hot and you hear a traveler tell you about an oasis that's just over the hill. You know, you would feel excitement and delight as you're approaching the oasis. But after you've drunk and you're resting beneath a shady tree, you'd feel satisfied and calm. And I feel like what we're doing in meditation is acquiring a taste for subtler and subtler pleasures. Thich Nhat Hanh has that expression, happiness is available. Please help yourself. You know, there's a lot there, but what that brings up for me is an image of, you know, a bulk food store with one bin labeled happiness and like it's still really full. And the bin next to it is labeled drama. And there's like people like digging around for the last little grains, like, oh, give me that. So we need, as, as the mind gets used to the subtler pleasures of, of calm and, you know, this self-created happiness or joy, 
that doesn't depend on things going our way. You know, there's less need to go outwards and stir things up just for stimulation. Oh, rats, I don't remember the details. Um, uh, there, there was an experiment I was re reading about recently where um, people were asked to uh, sit quietly in a room by themselves, nothing to read, nothing to look at, no devices to play with, um, and just to sit for 20 minutes. Uh, there was one device they could play with. It was a device that would give them a painful electric shock. <laughs> um, and I, do, do you remember that the, there was some, it was some astounding proportion, like 60% of the study participants chose to shock themselves <laughs> rather than doing nothing. So, you know, we're training ourselves to be content without, you know, drama including the drama we create ourselves, 100%. There's that nice Basho poem, sitting quietly, doing nothing. Spring comes, and the grass grows by itself. That really, for me, captures that sense of contented calm, a sense of the vitality that can be present even when outwardly it looks like there's nothing going on. So this sense of calm, we can strengthen it by stepping away from likes and dislikes, just simplifying and relaxing, relaxing the mind away from the past and the future, just letting it rest in the present. Being in nature can strengthen a sense of calm. Um, I remember one time on retreat, I was, I think I was like doing laundry or something and my mind felt really, you know, contracted and just slightly unpleasant and cranky. And I stepped outside and saw the stars and all of that contraction just fell away. Just the spaciousness of the, the natural world, um, and naturally invited my mind to join it in a sense of okayness. Another way of strengthening the tendency to calm is being around calm people. The Buddha often gives these really pragmatic instructions about how to strengthen skillful states. If you want to be happy, spend time with happy people. If you want to be wise, spend time with wise people. If you want to be calm, spend time with calm people. So coming here, you get to do all three. And I feel, I feel like with calm in particular, there's, you know, something about like just seeing how other people move through space does something to, to our minds, something, something, mirror neurons, something, something. That's my level of understanding of neurology. Um, Another thing that strengthens your mind's inclination to calm is watching your sila. So taking care with how cause and effect operates in your actions. This supports non-remorse in your own mind. And it also supports safety for the people around you. It lets them relax and become calm, which in turn supports your relaxation and calm. A helpful 
way to in incline the mind to calm, especially if you don't think of yourself as a calm person or if you're sort of fixated on the amount of mental chatter that you've got going on, is to turn your, you turn your attention to the space between the thoughts. So it's just a simple change of perspective. It's not, oh dear, there's another thought. It's, oh, that was the end of one thought. And there's a space here. Noticing and appreciating those moments of quiet, no matter how short they are, helps to develop the taste for, for mental quiet. And sometimes you can have the experience of, you know, the body not being super jumpy, but the mind feeling agitated. And so that's, you can incline the mind towards calm by tuning into what feels solid in your physical experience. So just the, the feeling of um, stability of the body sitting, the solidity of the earth beneath your feet, tuning into to what's stable physically can help incline the mind to taking on that same quality of stability. A student the other day asked me, you know, I can achieve calm in meditation, but how do I carry that out into challenging life situations? And the best, I think the best I could come with at the moment come up with at the moment was like, yeah, how do you do that? Um, but, you know, having at least an appreciation for calm can give you a touch point or at least the desire to check in with this expansive mind when things start getting tense. Thich Nhat Hanh says, someone asked me, aren't you worried about the state of the world? I allowed myself to breathe, and then I said, what is most important is not to allow your anxiety about what happens in the world to fill your heart. If your heart is filled with anxiety, you'll get sick and you won't be able to help. And, you know, the, these aren't just hypothetical words, like this is somebody who's been a powerful voice for peace for decades now. Um, and so, you know, he's speaking from experience when he says it's possible with strong practice to bring calm even to the most challenging situations. His colleague, Sister Chan Kong, who's sort of been with him every step of the way, uh, writes, In February 1967, this was in the middle of what the Vietnamese call the American War, Grenades were thrown into the School of Youth for Social Service dormitories during the night. This was the school for social workers that they had founded to train young people to help um, however was needed. And because they helped both sides of the conflict, uh, they were hated by both sides. So these grenades were thrown into the windows. Eighteen people of... A, Eighteen of our friends were killed or seriously wounded. She says, it was difficult to remain calm with so much hatred and anger directed towards us. We wondered how people could be so cruel. We had no weapons, only love and concern for fellow humans. 
We cared not only for the poor peasants, but also for many other friends. How could they throw grenades at unarmed young people? We had to take care of the wounded and also to organize funerals for, for our friends who had died. A monk asked me to write a speech for him to read at the funeral. After a day of mindfulness by myself, I wrote the following. We cannot hate you, you who have thrown grenades and killed our friends, because we know that humans are not our enemies. Our only enemies are the misunderstanding, hatred, jealousy, and ignorance that lead to such acts of violence. Please allow us to remove all misunderstanding so we can work together for the happiness of the Vietnamese people. So that's some powerful practice. Finding the heart orienting towards calm in the darkest of circumstances. The Sri Lankan monk Piyadasi Mahatera says, the most deceptive thing in the world is to imagine that they alone are strong who are noisy, or that they alone possess power who are fussily busy. The practitioner who cultivates calm of the mind does not get upset, confused, or excited when confronted with the eight vicissitudes of the world, the worldly winds of loss and gain, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and obscurity. They endeavor to see the rise and fall of all things conditioned, how things come into being and pass away. Free from anxiety and restlessness, they see the fragility of what is fragile. So I was thinking about what, what I actually want to tell you about these states, joy and calm. It's really simple, I guess, that they're possible, that they're nourishing, that they're not going to be present all the time to the same degree. But once you know that they're possible, this sense of aliveness and stability can accompany all other experiences. The mind can be big enough to hold everything as it arises. That these states depend on causes and conditions. So let go of limiting beliefs about your own capacity to be joyful or to be calm and trust that they arise when conditions are right. And I just wanted to end with another Mary Oliver poem. Today, I'm flying low and I'm not saying a word. I'm letting all of the demons of ambition sleep. The world goes on as it must, the bees in the garden rumbling a little, the fish leaping, the gnats getting eaten, and so forth. But I'm taking the day off. Quiet as a feather, I hardly move, though really I'm traveling a terrific distance. Stillness, one of the doors into the temple.
you for your practice.